to be back with you after a little break. We had a great time over in Ireland, um, time with family. Great to catch up with everybody over there. Um, and uh, it's great to be back and just to be able worshiping God together. We're in Acts chapter 15, verses 5 to 21. So we find that in your Bibles. We'll come to there in a moment. I just want to just pray again, just to center ourselves. And uh, we're going to finish up with communion a little bit later on as well, going to just as, as we um, tie everything together. But Lord, thank you for your word, your precious word. Thank you, Lord. It is life. It is literally bread to our hearts to our souls, Lord, food for us to get into and to provide wonderful nourishment for us. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, is life and water to us. And Lord, as we get to the, the sort of bread and water, the essentials of our souls, Lord, Father, just nourish us this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Keep us centered on you, on Christ alone, on the grace alone. It's all about you, as we've declared already. So we give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. See, how, how we deal with, with conflict, with discouragement within our families, within our churches is absolutely critical to the unity that we find in the gospel. And I'm sure you've been in situations where there's been a difference of opinion that could potentially have turned very nasty and maybe the, the fallout of it almost seems inevitable to cause absolute disaster. Well, today we're going to look at a couple of verses, um, verses from, from Acts chapter 15 that places them in exactly the same sort of situation. You see, and through hopefully we'll see how the early church dealt with discouragement that had the potential to just drive people apart. The story begins when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem. The issue on the table was whether the Gentiles, believers, needed to obey the Old Testament laws. So, picking up in verse 5, it says this. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now from, from, as we go further on into the, into the talk, I'll use the word Judaizers for that, okay, just to get, so you know what I'm talking about, okay, so this is the people, we're talking about these, this party of the Pharisees referred to as Judaizers, um, so they stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, that's their point, verse 6, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So this is where we are, okay, in this situation. And there appears to be at least four different meetings that made up this very strategic conference. The first was a public welcome for Paul and his friends. The second was a private meeting between Paul and the key leaders, also mentioned in, in, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 2. Then thirdly, there's, a, there's this second public meeting where the Judaizers, these Pharisee people, these Judaizers present their case. That's mentioned here in Acts chapter 15, verses 5 to 6, the bit we just read, but also in Galatians chapter 2, 3 to 5. And then fourthly, there's a public discussion that's recorded in this passage that we're looking at today from Acts 15, verses 6 to 21, where the four key leaders present their case. The first person to step up is Peter. 
And Peter presents the evidence to try and counteract the believers who wanted the Gentiles to get circumcised. Verses 7 to 11. Let's let's read how Luke records that. Verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now it would appear that before Peter even began to speak, it seems if he almost was sitting patiently just listening um, to all the questioning that was going on from these Judaizers, these people who were debating backwards and forwards. He's probably also waiting just on the direction of the Holy Spirit. And this is an important point. Listen, if you're in a difficult situation, if you're in a tense situation where you know things are going to be just rather difficult, be slow to speak. Just don't jump in too quickly. Just be slow before you speak. Take time to pray, to wait on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows much better than you than anything you can do or say anytime, any place. Listen to him. Take time to get his direction. Take time to take godly wisdom and pray for Holy Spirit direction. When Peter does get up to speak, he reminds the church of four important ministries that God had performed to the Gentiles and which Peter himself had played a very important part. The first is this. He reminds them that it was God who made the choice for Peter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This is God's work. This is what God is doing. In fact, it was Jesus who had given Peter the very keys to the kingdom of God. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus had told the disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Peter had used these keys to open up the door of faith to the Jews, Acts chapter 2, to the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, and then to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. And Peter had made it very clear that Cornelius and his household were saved by hearing and believing the gospel. It was by God's grace, not by the law of Moses. And this is key to everything we're going to see as we move further on. So first of all, this is God's choice. The second thing that Peter goes on to say is that God give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. And in doing so, he proves to them that they were truly born again. Only God can see the human heart. So if these people had been, if these people had not been saved, God would have never given them the Holy Spirit. In fact, God has sent the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles in exactly the same way as he did to the Jews. 
So by arguing against this, they're actually arguing against God. In Romans chapter 8 verse 9, reminds us that if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Of course, the reverse is also true. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you then belong to Christ. So the Holy Spirit is proof that God has accepted the Gentiles. And what Peter's really doing here is reinforcing his first point that the Gentiles don't receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law, but by receiving the word and the grace of God. Peter's message is simple. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin through his name. And the Holy Spirit is proof of this. The third thing Peter goes on to do, he says says that God removes the walls of separation. For centuries, God has put a difference between Jew and Gentile, and so it was the task of the religious leaders to protect and to maintain that difference. But then Jesus came along with a radical message. He taught that the Jewish dietary law had nothing to do with holiness and that God was concerned about the heart much more than he was about the outward observation of the law. And then, of course, Peter's own experience at Joppa, where God spoke to him through a vision on the rooftop, where he heard exactly the same thing, that God is concerned about your heart. You know that? God is interested not so much in the outward appearance of how you come dressed with a nice jacket on. I know some of you haven't bothered this morning. Sorry about that. But um, God is concerned about our hearts, that we worship him, that we honor him in all that we do. You see, since Jesus' death and resurrection, God had made no difference between Jew and Gentile as far as sin and salvation is concerned. Sinners can have their hearts purified only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not about keeping laws or rules or regulations and we all come to God in exactly the same way. Whatever your background, your social standing, your education, your nationality, God has removed the walls of, celebration, of, of, of separation between us because God brings down those barriers completely in Christ Jesus. Fourthly, God has removed the yoke of the law. See, the law was indeed a burden to the Jewish nation. It simply weighed them down because it was impossible to keep. So how could they possibly ask the Gentiles to follow the Jewish laws when the Jewish nation had failed to do it for thousands of years? Of course, the law was originally given to the Jewish people in order to protect them from the evils of the Gentile world and to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. But the law can never purify a sinner's heart. The law can never impart the gift of the Holy Spirit. The law can never give eternal life. But what the law could not do, God did through his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Something just excited about? And through Jesus, the burden has been removed. This is the wonderful message of the gospel. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, we read, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened against again by a yoke of slavery. Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. 
Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who put their trust and Jesus have the righteousness of God's law in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit that you obey his will. So we are no longer motivated by fear. We're motivated by love. As Peter finishes, he sums everything up. It's only by the grace of God that anyone can be saved. No add-ons, no extras. It's by grace alone, through Christ alone. This is the radical message of the cross, of, of the gospel, to anyone who believes. The impact of Peter's words were so powerful that the congregation sat in silence after he had finished as they waited for Paul and Barnabas to get up. Just a little aside, if you find yourself in a situation where there's disagreement among believers, learn from Peter. Speak the word of God in love. Keep your conversation centered on Jesus, on the gospel, and on the cross. Your aim, listen, our aim is to proclaim God's idea, not our own. We want God to be glorified. It's all about him. So no matter how good you may think your idea is, and sometimes we think they're really good, we want God's idea. We want his will, his purpose over our lives. So it's now Barnabas and Paul's turn to give evidence. This is verse 12. And they describe the signs and wonders that have taken place among the Gentile believers through their ministry. Let me read exactly what, what Luke, how Luke records it. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done, through, done among the Gentiles through them. And Dr. Luke writes only one summary sentence in this report since he's actually already covered it in much more detail in chapters 13 and 14. Of course, Paul and Barnabas were greatly respected among the church and their testimony carried a great deal of weight. And the emphasis was on the miracles that God had enabled them to perform among the Gentiles. Miracles that were proof that they were God's chosen messengers and that God was working through them. God had honored their message, that the one that they had preached, a message of grace, not law. And they had seen how God had opened up the door of grace to the Gentiles. And once again, there is no doubt in their minds that all sinners, whatever their background, are saved in the same way by grace through faith. So Paul and Barnabas, what they say is just backing up everything that Peter has already said. There is no difference in how God has treated the Gentiles compared to the Jews. Peter 
had begun by reviewing God's ministry in the past. Paul, Barnabas, describe what's happening in the present. Then James, the final speaker, focuses on the future. Let's pick up again verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God has intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the name of mankind may seek the Lord. Sorry, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even as the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It's thought that this James was the brother of Jesus and the writer of the letter of James. And it's worth noting that he and his brothers, they hadn't believed in Christ until after the resurrection. Yet James begins where Peter and Paul left off. He expresses his full agreement that the salvation of the Gentiles was by grace alone. But it also must have really shocked the Judaizers when James calls the saved Gentiles a people for his name, a people for God's name. You see, for centuries, the Jews had carried this honorable title. It was theirs alone. It didn't belong to anybody else. Yet today, God is graciously calling out people. He's building his church from every nation, both Jew and Gentile alike. And once again, James emphasizes that their salvation is all of grace. It's not about keeping off the laws. And he wants them to understand that this is not just a New Testament teaching. In the Old Testament, there are declarations both about the salvation of the Gentiles, but also about the future establishment of a glorious kingdom for Israel. But what's missing in the Old Testament is an explanation about how these relate to each other. And today, well, we've got a much better grasp of the truth of this. Thanks only to Paul who explains it in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 and Romans chapter 9 to 11. And the truth about the church, the body of Christ, which was a mystery hidden in past ages, has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. You see, God is building a new eternal kingdom in, Acts chapter, sorry, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, it makes, it makes it very clear that God will keep his kingdom promise to his people. But James also goes on to state that the prophets agreed with this conclusion. He quotes from Amos chapter 9, and he makes this point. These are the words of God. This is God speaking. He says, after this, God says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. And Amos was describing times and events that were yet to come. And the establishment and the growth of God's eternal kingdom. Where God will restore his people. Where he will bless them abundantly. And a new king who will reign over every nation. Fulfilling the covenant that God made with David. A king who will sit on David's throne forever and forever. And that future king, the one that Amos is prophesying about, I think we know his name, Jesus. 
And James's point is very simple. God has revealed these truths gradually to his people, but his plan has been settled from the very beginning of time. This is not that God has changed his plan. God hasn't changed his mind. This is not plan B. This has always been his original plan and his purpose. Neither the cross nor the church were afterthoughts with God. See, the Judaizers thought that Israel had to rise to form a glorious kingdom before the Gentiles could be saved. But God revealed that it was through Israel's fall that the Gentiles would be saved. And a reminder to all of us that in each and every situation that you face, difficult and challenging as that may be, God is working out his plan and there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can change his will or his purpose over your life. The conclusion, verses 19 to 21. And James brings the whole discussion together to with one final um, recommendation. Let's read verse 19. He says, James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue in every Sabbath. And the overall conclusion was that the law is not part of how we are saved. Peter says, sums up beautifully, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. That's it. And it was on this foundation and the direction of the Holy Spirit that the leaders made their twofold decision. The first was a doctrinal decision about salvation. The second was a practical decision about how to live the Christian life. And that first doctrinal decision, of course, is by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, that we can know God, that we are saved, that our lives are transformed. It's only, there's no extras, there's no add-ons, by faith alone. But this is something of how they, I think they were thinking in terms of how they got to their conclusion. As Jews and Gentiles, we are all sinners before God and can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And there is one need and there is one gospel that meets that need. But as James says in James chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. So biblical truth must be applied to our lives. It's got to be lived out. You see, Christ, uh, church problems are not solved by passing resolutions, but by practicing the revelation of God that he gives to us through his word and by his spirit. So James advises the church to write to the Gentile believers and to share the decision made by the conference. The letter was to ask them to obey two commandments but also be willing to agree to two personal concessions. The two commandments were to avoid idolatry and sexual immorality. The two concessions 
were that they were to be willing to abstain from eating blood and from eating meat from animals that had died by strangulation. But of course it begs the question, why these concessions? Why were they necessary? You know, we don't do that today, do we? We don't, we don't avoid that things. I don't like those black pudding stuff, but people still eat them. I don't judge you for it, but I don't understand it. Um, so why these concessions about food? You need to remember that the early church mostly met in homes. And they would regularly eat together and they were very hospitable. But if the Gentile believers ate food that the Jewish believers considered unclean, this would certainly cause a huge amount of difficulties and division among the church. In fact, it's exactly the same problem that Paul deals with in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where he makes the point that if you love someone, you don't do things to offend them or to cause them to stumble or sin. So the decision made by these church leaders was about expressing a loving unity between two groups of people who once historically were just polar opposites. So the legalistic Jews were willing to give in and, to, and not insist that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the Gentiles were willing to accept a change in their eating habits. It was a loving compromise that didn't in any way affect the truth of the gospel. And that's key. In fact, it's exactly the same thing that we do, or at least we should be doing in our marriages and in our families. Out of love for one another, we make concessions and we make compromises every day. And so it should be within our churches. There are too often fights that are simply unnecessary over things that are just of no importance. So we need to be careful that we don't get wound up over issues that are just not central to the gospel. Now, obviously, there are issues of gospel and faith that we must never compromise on. So the resurrection is non-negotiable. We don't, we don't try and, and disprove it or try and undermine it. And if people come to and say it's not true, we say, look, no, the Bible says it's true. So things we don't compromise on. But how often do we hear of churches that split over trivial issues that should have been resolved by love? So we can learn a lot from this early church and how they dealt with conflict See, we do it with a Christ-centered communication, with Holy Spirit inspiration. But we do, with, we do so with purpose. There's a reason why we're doing this, and we see it in this early church, and it's still applicable to us today. And I'm going to give you four reasons just very quickly of why we want to deal with conflict well. Firstly, because it strengthens the unity of the church. It prevents people from splitting apart over secondary issues. Secondly, it ensures that the church presents a united witness to the lost. Our goal in everything we do must be the gospel. It's centered around Christ, around the cross, and around the gospel. It must be about reaching those who need to hear about Jesus. The third thing to avoid this conflict, we need to avoid it so it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak or to the lost. A heart that loves God always looks out for one another. And that sometimes means refraining from doing certain things. I'm not talking about sinful things, but the things that perhaps we all do that perhaps our brother and sister in Christ when he struggles with, we don't do it for their sake. In love, 
we refrain. The fourth thing, it brings blessing. When we get together, when we are in unity, it brings blessing to the whole congregation. We all benefit when we work together in unity and peace with each other. It's great for all of us. It's a great place to be. But actually, dealing with difficult situations, whether at home or at school or at work or or within our churches, can only truly be resolved by the grace of God. When you truly understand the gospel and what Jesus did for you on the cross and the inexpressible, the incontainable love of God towards you, only then will you be able to show that love to others. The bottom line is, you need Jesus every single day, more and more. And my prayers, we've been praying already, is that this year, that our lives would be filled with his love, with his grace, in greater abundance. As we live for him, we will grow in love for one another as well. Let's stand together. Just gonna come back to worship. I'm gonna come to communion in a moment. Just gonna just pray. Father, if you're able to stand, of course. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Father, we want to live with our hearts facing towards you, with our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, this year, Lord, we want to pray for significance this year. But Lord, we pray that we would love you with every ounce of strength that we have. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, to that end, that we'd also love one another. And love those that aren't here yet. Those that are lost in their sin at this moment. Father, we want to pray for their salvation. Lord, fill this place in 2020 with lost sinners who have found Christ and her saints of God, we pray. In Jesus' name.